Hello, everyone, and welcome again to another episode of Across the Divide podcast. Today, we have Fabir, myself, and Jennifer um, hosting this episode. Uh, Jennifer, would you please tell us a little bit about why we decided to have this episode as our third one? Yeah, so this episode is a unique one because it's made up of talks that were recorded from a a special panel that was put together at this year's gathering of the American Academy of Religion. Uh, Scholars of religion and biblical studies gathered from all over the country and really all over the world. Uh, And there was a special session put together by the Middle Eastern Christianities Unit to talk specifically about this open letter that was put out by Palestinian Christians at the start of the war on Gaza And in this letter, they call on the Western church to repent of of how it engages with and treats and responds to uh, Palestine and especially this war on Gaza. So um, you'll hear the the introductions of all of the speakers who we're hearing from right before they speak during this episode. We do have permission from all of them to share their amazing talks with you. But just as a note, these recordings happened in a combination of uh, virtual recordings and then recordings on a phone in this in this room in San Antonio, Texas, in person. So the audio is uh, inconsistent and a little bit rough and ready. So just bear with us throughout the episode. It won't sound like the rest of our episodes, but we felt like these conversations are so important and are not happening in a lot of spaces among Christians in the U.S. And so we really wanted to bring these conversations to you all. In episode two, Daniel and I talked about Christian responses to the war on Gaza, and we only scratched the surface of Palestinian Christian responses. And so we really wanted to make sure that we forwarded those voices here on the podcast and that you all get to hear directly from uh, some of the Palestinian Christian leaders who wrote this open letter. That's great. Thank you, Jen. So in case you haven't read the open letter yet, it can be found in the show notes below. Um, this is one of the very important letters that kind of summarizes the different voices of Palestinian theologians and uh, different grassroots organizations, as Jen mentioned. And it's very important that you also read it to, under- to further understand the context of these talks, uh, because our speakers do refer to this letter. Uh, So without further ado, here are the talks. The first speaker and co-author of the open letter is Munther Itzak. Munther is a Palestinian Christian pastor and theologian. He now pastors the Evangelical Lutheran Christmas Church in Bethlehem and the Lutheran Church in Beit Sohor. He is also the academic dean of Bethlehem Bible College and is the director of the highly acclaimed and influential Christ at the Checkpoint Conference. He speaks locally and internationally and has published numerous articles on issues related to the theology of the land, Palestinian Christians and Palestinian theology, holistic mission, and reconciliation. He is the author of The Other Side of the Wall and From Land to Lands, From Eden to the Renewed Earth, and has published several theological books in Arabic. Dear friends, I would like to begin by expressing my gratitude for the Middle Eastern Christianity Unit at the AAR 
for extending this invitation for myself and my colleagues and for giving attention to our call for repentance. These are very difficult and dark times and we feel that no one cares about Palestinian lives, no one wants to listen, and more importantly, we do not sense the urgency of religious and faith leaders to work to stop the atrocities that are taking place in Gaza right now. My thesis is simple. There is currently a genocide taking place in Gaza and many Western Christians and churches are complicit in it. I repeat, there is currently a genocide taking place in Gaza and many Western Christians and churches are complicit in it. As of today, around 12,000 Palestinians have been killed, including 5,000 children, uh, and there are thousands more who are considered missing under the rubble and the streets of Gaza. Half of the housing complexes in Gaza have been destroyed or damaged. Millions are now homeless and displaced. Entire neighborhoods have been wiped out and entire families and households no longer exist. Israel has cut electricity, water, gas from Gaza. Let us be clear, this is not about October 7th. This is not about destroying Hamas. This has nothing to do with returning the hostages. This is a genocide. This is ethnic cleansing. And tragically, according to the Israeli and American leaders, the end is not even close. The world powers gave a green light for this genocide. They provided political cover. Uh, they provided weapons and paid the bill. They are partners in crime. And despicably, they still claim they care for Palestinians, offering and sending thoughts and prayers, and providing humanitarian support. And then I say, many Western Christians and churches are complicit. The new uh, U.S. House Speaker Mike Johnson recently delivered, said in an address to the Republican Jewish Coalition, in it he said, As a Christian, we believe the Bible teaches very clearly that we're to stand with Israel, that God will bless the nation that blesses Israel. These are his words. So without any reference to history or context, Johnson, an evangelical Christian with strong ties to Israel, affirms USA's unconditional support of Israel for the simple reason that the Bible teaches that Christians must support Israel. To him, it doesn't matter what Israel has done or that, according to many human rights organizations, Israel is committing war crimes in Gaza. To him, the Bible teaches that Christians must support Israel, period. This sentiment reflects a long tradition of U.S. and European support for Israel that is embedded in biblical interpretations and theological traditions. Palestinian theologian Mitri Rahib refers to this as the software of empire, the software that enables Israel to continue its occupation and oppression of Palestinians. The current events in Gaza shed clear light on the context, uh, on the extent of the complicity of the Western church and world. Let me uh, explain. This first ignoring the context. This war did not start on October 7th. Saying this is not justifying what Hamas did, it's about understanding the context. There's a question circulating now in the media. What is an appropriate response to what Hamas did on October 7th? Many have compared Israel's October 7th uh, to USA's 9-11. And as a Palestinian, and ask, what is an appropriate response to 75 years of ethnic cleansing and oppression? Let us remember that 70% of Gazans are refugees from 1948 Nakba. Refugees who have not been granted the right for any compensation. Most media, or the right to return, most media frame this as an October 7th war. But this is a continuation of the 1948 Palestinian Nakba. 
No one's talking about the fact that these are people who are being denied their right of return to their villages and the state of Israel was built on the ruins of their villages. It is outrageous and shocking to us how we are pushed by Christians to accept that Jews are entitled to the land because they lived here 2,000 years ago, while the people of Gaza should not be allowed to go back to their towns and cities from 1948. Then there is the current siege. This is the context. Gaza was hell before October 7th. Uh, Antonio Gutierrez said, if there is hell on earth, it is the lives of children in Gaza. He said this in 2021. Hillary Clinton recently said there was ceasefire on October 6th. What a blatant denial of our suffering. What a rude dehumanization of Palestinians. 75 years of a system that has been described as apartheid by leading human rights organizations, including Israel's own B'Tselem. Israel is led by extreme government that declared, and I quote, that the Jewish people have an exclusive and unalienable right to all parts of the land of Israel. This is the context. We are outraged when Christian leaders ignore this context. We are outraged by this colonial narrative that begins with October 7th. Then the Palestinians are dehumanized. Responding to a question about the high number of civilians killed by the Israeli airstrikes, President Biden responded saying that he had no confidence in the number that the Palestinians are using. This remark, which can be characterized as racist, minimizes the scale of death of Palestinians in Gaza. It is dehumanizing. It's as if our lives do not matter. Biden's remarks reflect an important element in this war. The words of Palestinians are, also, are most often met with suspicion, but the words of Israeli government and military are seldom questioned. The irony here is that according to a very recent poll, only 4% 4% of Israeli Jews find Netanyahu a reliable source on Gaza war. Yet Western media and Western church leaders take his words as close to infallible. When the Al-Ahli hospital was bombed and after Israel denied being responsible, the world responded, oh, we cannot assume it's Israel. Archbishop Welby went as far as charging that to suspect Israel is, and I quote, blood libel, reflecting Europe's racist history regarding the Palestinians. In his worldview, Israel does not bomb hospitals. It must be the Palestinians. The Western colonial narrative also uses the language of good versus evil. When churches talk about Hamas, they use words brutal, inhumane, and animal. An evangelical pastor called for Israel to make Gaza a parking lot. A congressman claimed that we are all Nazis and that there are no innocent Nazis. The worthlessness of Palestinian lives in the eyes of the Western world was on full display in how the world reacted to war crimes against Ukraine versus war crimes against Palestinians. In this war, we are referred to as collateral damage. They talk about us as boxes in homes. Where do we take these Palestinians? Why doesn't Egypt open the borders? This ignores our rootedness in our land and our national identity. Maybe we should ask why doesn't the US or Europe state uh, open its border? The idea that we are just boxes that can be moved from one place to another is not just ethnic cleansing, it is the dehumanization of Palestinians. And part of this colonial narrative is always portraying Israel as the victim. 
A further feature of the Western narrative is the familiar account of Israel's victimization despite the 75 years of Israel's violence towards and ethnic cleansing of Palestinians. Israel's actions are repeatedly described as self-defense. And this is how most church statements began about what happened. And October 7th is evil. Israel has the right to defend itself. In turn, before we are allowed to share our narrative, Palestinians are expected to begin every conversation by condemning Hamas, Palestinian violence as a whole, and the evil of anti-Semitism, along with defending our occupiers' right to exist. The charge of anti-Semitism have always been used to silence us. Even our theology was called anti-Semitic. The West, with its shameful, racist, and anti-Semitic history, has the audacity to lecture us on anti-Semitism. I don't condone violence. Most Palestinian Christians don't condone violence. We believe in creative, non-violent resistance, as the Kairos document articulates. Those who know our theology know this. But again, no one's talking about the Palestinians' right to self-defense. No one's talking about our right to exist. We are the occupied. We are the colonized. And then there is the what I call soft language and fake spirituality. It is now day 44 of this genocide. And many churches have still not called for a ceasefire. Some have called for a humanitarian ceasefire, but not real ceasefire. They talk about the humanitarian crisis in Gaza. Not genocide, but humanitarian crisis. They offer prayers for peace. They are silent about the genocide. And they will be the first to show up for relief. This is an indictment against the church. A church that does not call things by name, a church that has lost its prophetic courage is a church that lost its credibility. And finally, the weaponization of the Bible, which my colleagues will talk more about. In 1948, Western churches provided Israel with the theology needed to colonize Palestine. The narrative that Jews were returning to their land was based on biblical history casting us, the indigenous people of the land, as strangers and aliens in our own land. For 75 years, Christian Zionists have provided the cover for Israel to continue the occupation and displacement of Palestinians. For 75 years, Western churches have ignored the Palestinian Christians' many calls and pleas. Churches that resented our request to call out Israeli policies are apartheid, are complicit in the suffering of the Palestinians. Christians in their justification of this war, in their failure to call for an immediate ceasefire, are complicit in this genocide. Martin Luther King Jr. is remembered for saying, we remember not those who were against us, but those who were silent. To me, this is beyond silence. This is about direct and intentional complicity. Thank you. The second speaker and co-author of The Open Letter is Yusuf Al-Khuri. Yusuf is a Palestinian Arab Christian born in Gaza. He is a lecturer of biblical studies at Bethlehem Bible College and a PhD candidate in contextual biblical interpretation and theologies at the Vrie University of Amsterdam. Al-Khuri is a board member of Kairos Palestine and Christ at the Checkpoint. Our urgent call for repentance comes as a response to the long history of ignoring and silencing Palestinians. It underlines and confronts once again the West, and particularly Western Christians, with their sin of colonization and their complicity in the suffering of the indigenous Palestinians. 
Israeli colonization and settler colonialism of Palestine is an extension of European colonialism, and it's a continuation of colonial weaponization of the Bible against the Palestinian people and against the colonized in general. Most of the time, uh, the events that we have seen uh, in the last 42, uh, 42 days are being interpreted away from the original context and the macro context of the Palestinian plight. Therefore, context matters. Context matters because what's happening in Gaza is a microcosm of Palestine and what happened in Palestine for the last hundred years of an Israeli settler colonial project and attempts to ethnically cleanse the Palestinian people from their home land. The aim of the Zionist project since its early days, as revealed by the Israeli historian Ilan Pepe, is to create a homogenous ethno-religious Jewish state on the entirety of the Palestinian uh, land, which means is the pushing and ethnically cleansing of the Palestinian indigenous population from their homeland in order to pave away for the new settler immigrants to come and colonize, occupy the land of Palestine. This is, includes uh, not only the land that was occupied uh, in 1948 and later 1967, but also includes the West Bank and Gaza. And as we focus uh, on Gaza right now, we need to be reminded that Gaza has been under a complete blockade for the last 17 years. And despite the fact that Israel uh, dismantled settlements in Gaza under the international law and the facts on the ground makes it very clear that Israel is still the occupying power in control of Gaza Strip. For the last 17 years, more than 2.3 million people or 2 million people have been uh, under a complete besiege and blockade in place by the Israeli military and the Israeli government, making Gaza the largest concentration camp on the planet, according to Baruch Kimberling, who's a well-respected professor of sociology uh, in Israel. So just to make it very clear that this massive population lives only in a 360 kilometer, a square kilometer uh, piece of land where it's completely uh, locked from the, the ground, the air, and in the sea. People have no freedom of movement outside of Gaza, have very limited access to water, uh, clean water, drinkable water, uh, electricity, food, and even uh, healthcare, adequate healthcare. 70% of Gaza population, in fact, is refugees, people who were forcibly displaced since 1948. And although the UN Resolution 194 guarantees and protects the Palestinians' right to return to their homeland, Israel and the international community failed and never respected the resolution. And while also the international community and the UN uh, grants the people under occupation the right to resist that occupation, Palestinians are not uh, included uh, from that right. We can see this very clearly because Palestinians in Gaza have tried several methods of resisting 
and amplifying their voices so the international community would hear and learn about their suffering for so long, including nonviolent marches of return, which is supposedly to be protected under the international law, were faced by the Israeli military with violence. More than 200 people were killed and a couple of thousands were severely injured. The genocidal war and the ethnic cleansing attempts against Gaza has been always the plan uh, for the Israeli Zionist project in, in order to colonize the rest of Gaza and uh, succeed in their settler colonial project. And we get to see this in official documents which were released uh, recently. Uh, the Israeli government planned to displace the Palestinian people from Gaza to the Egyptian Sinai Peninsula in order to take over the whole um, Gaza Strip. But even uh, Israeli ministers are bragging about this plan very clearly uh, on media, such as Abi Dichter, who speaks very uh, loudly about rolling out a new Nakba or Nakba of 2023. So we need to be reminded that 70% of Gaza population experienced Nakba uh, in 1948, and they have been displaced for the last 75 years. And once again, the Nakba continues against Palestinians in Gaza as Israel is attempting to displace or already displaced more than 1.5 million Palestinians within Gaza Strip and trying now to push them into Sinai, Egyptian Sinai. And by the way, just to make it uh, also here clear, this is the plan uh, that Israel also uh, making in place for the West Bank. On social media, Palestinians now can see a sponsored ad by Israeli settler groups calling them to immigrate and leave the West Bank to Jordan as they are attempting to continue with the genocidal war in the West Bank in addition to what already has been happening in Gaza. For all of that, the Bible has been always utilized in service of the colonial regime. But what's really disturbing in the last 42 days and what we have known for the last 70 five years, is the scandalous double standardism in the West. How the Palestinians are denied their basic human rights and uh, what is protected by the international law, while these same human rights are uh, being granted to other groups of people. And it's well documented how the West responded to other atrocities taking place in different countries and their response to the Palestinian experience and uh, Israeli genocide against the Palestinian indigenous population. So let's go to the weaponization of the Bible because it seems um, that the Bible has uh, overly been used by the colonial regime and the colonial rhetoric in order to support and justify colonialism. And that's exactly what happened. The whole idea of an empty land is, of course, uh, brings back the concept of exile and return. And we can see that many Christians, the proto-Christian Zionists from the 16th century up to 21st century have used this kind of language, an empty land uh, of Palestine, of course, disregarding the whole Palestinian culture and population that was very uh, uh, viable uh, in the, throughout history. And people who have been rooted uh, in the land of Palestine for centuries, uh, if not thousands of years. And that's purely, in fact, at the beginning was a Christian uh, idea, the whole idea of uh, there is a land without people for a people without land, uh, comes as a way of Christian interpretation of certain scriptural texts 
in order to support their colonial uh, ideology of returning European Jews to their ancestors' homeland. And this is uh, just to be very careful with the language and terminologies because it's a terminology uh, of the colonizers. Uh, Jacob Ariel, professor of religion and historian, he argues that the use of the Bible is motivated by a literal reading of the Bible and adhering to a messianic faith. Many evangelical Christians, and by the way, uh, Protestant and Catholic Christians as well, view contemporary Jews as heirs to biblical Israel and object of prophecies about the restored Davidic kingdom in the messianic nation. So this kind of narrative and interpretation served the colonial regime. And the whole idea of an empty land and exile and return can be very clearly in terminologies of settler colonialism. Uh, as Lorenzo uh, Vercini, a, le a leading scholar in settler colonial studies, argues that the interest of settler colonial project is, to, is turning indigenous peoples into refugees by also indigenizing the settlers. And how the indigenization of the settlers happen is claiming somehow uh, historical rights and, his, uh, and religious uh, heritage into the land they colonize, which originally that heritage belongs to the indigenous people who were displaced as well. We can see this kind of narrative and uh, utilization of the Bible in order to serve the, the Zionist colonial regime is the words of David Ben-Gurion, who talks about uh, the settler colonial project of Palestine is part of the restoration of the Davidic kingdom and Solomon to its uh, biblical border, which means also that Ben-Gurion's vision and the Zionist vision is actually expansionist, because if we follow Solomon's uh, border, then it includes Syria, Lebanon, uh, Iraq, and Egypt, which is a very interesting uh, way to put it here. The second example is the miracle of David and Goliath, especially many uh, times this uh, kind of language invoked against the Arabs and Palestinians. Inan Pepe, the Israeli historian, speaks about how Israel was viewed as David fighting the Arab Goliath. This was in 1948 and again repeated in 1967, uh, where we can, uh, especially among the evangelical West and evangelical Christians and the revival of Zionist Christianity in North America after the 1967-60 days war, this kind of text is re-invoked and brought again because they viewed the Israeli victory over the Arab countries as against all the odds, um, David against Goliath. And part of the issue in this kind of narrative is reinforcing conflation between biblical Israel and the colonial regime on one hand. On the second hand is ancient Palestinians or Philistines and the Palestinians. The irony or the ironic reversal we can witness nowadays is who is who? Uh, who's David and who's Goliath? Because uh, for sure Israel has the upper hand uh, militarily and in every other aspect. And the Palestinians seems to be uh, David. Uh, Israel is Goliath now and uh, Palestinians are in fact David. But we don't need to use this language, but it shows the ironic reversal, as I mentioned earlier. The third and most important weaponization of the Bible as a strategy, we could to see it, 
in this uh, in these last 42 days or 43 days is the use of uh, Amalek narrative in First Samuel 15, 3. It's used firstly, in fact, by Christian Zionist uh, leaders and organizations such as the uh, International Christian Embassy in Jerusalem, where they invoke this text in order to support the Israeli genocide in Gaza. And just if we read the text very carefully, we could see that Israel has applied literally that uh, text on the ground in Gaza. And reading the text, uh, very important. And here from Samuel 15.3, Now go and attack Amalek and utterly destroy all that they have. Do not spare them, but kill both men, women, child, infant, ox, sheep, camel, and donkey. That's literally what happened. In the last 42 days, Israel killed uh, thousands of Palestinians, nearly uh, 13,000 Palestinians. 70% of them are men, uh, are women and children. And of course, uh, the war resulted and the genocidal war resulted in the death and killing of cheap, um, uh, sheep and animals in, in, the, in Gaza Strip and the destruction of the Hora and Fountain in the Palestinian uh, Gaza territory. So what we have seen so far in this war and for the last hundred years is genocidal statements repeatedly made by the Zionist and the Israeli uh, and U.S. officials and political leaders to justify the Israeli war and ethnic cleansing of the Palestinians. To conclude here, um, although, I disagree, uh, although I agree with uh, the post-colonial critic and biblical hermeneuticist um, uh, Shubra Faraja, when he rightly states that the Bible is a colonial document, nevertheless, the Bible is also a document of the oppressed and colonized. The Bible is not the problem, but biblical interpretation is. Uh, utilizing and invoking religious scriptures to justify ethnic cleansing and genocide is a form of ideological and theological terrorism. Therefore, responsible religious and particularly here Christian scholarship is an imperative for the common good of humanity. And if we can see an example of that is, in fact, with Palestinian Christian theology, uh, such as Kairos Palestine and uh, Christ at the Checkpoint, Sabil, who introduced a solid, biblical, Christ-centered, kingdom-oriented theology of reconciliation and justice for Palestine, where the Bible is liberated from the colonial ideology. If you are enjoying this episode, if you've been learning and benefiting from the conversations we host on this podcast, bridging the divide between the church in the West and Palestine, please consider supporting Across the Divide with a monthly or one-time donation. You can donate via the link in the show notes. That link is ko-fi.com slash Across the Divide podcast. The third speaker and co-author of The Open Letter, is Daniel Banora. Daniel is a Palestinian Christian from Bethlehem. He is a PhD candidate in Quranic studies at the University of Notre Dame. His research focuses on the redaction of the Quran, Syriac Christianity in late antiquity, as well as Christian-Muslim relations and Islam in Palestine. He is the founder of Ultimate Palestine, the Palestinian Association for Ultimate Frisbee, and he is one of the hosts of Across the Divide podcast. Hello, friends. Thank you for being here at this panel. 
We need to let you know that we are hurt and we are disappointed. We're tired of being ignored and silenced. We're tired of trying to convince people that we suffer, that Palestinian lives matter. We are at pains to convince people to discover our humanity. We're exhausted of proving that we aren't anti-Semitic, of explaining that Zionism is not the same as Judaism. We're tired of doing other people's homework. We're, we're tired of proving that Palestinians are people who are worthy of dignity and freedom. However, James Baldwin told us to be enraged with the world, but not in despair about it. We continue to press on. We continue to fight for justice and for our liberation. For you who have just begun thinking about the situation in Palestine and Israel, we need you to understand that context matters, that the history of the struggle for the last 75 years matters, and it is history and context that help us to begin thinking well and thinking critically about the situation right now. There's a fundamental problem if the, if the conversation begins with Hamas and with October 7th. If you want to understand Hamas and this violence that transpired, you need to understand the conditions that made Hamas, that made people believe in armed struggle. Here I'm reminded by Martin Luther King. In the wake of urban riots in 1967, uh, Dr. King wrote the following. Quote, a million words will be written and spoken to dissect the ghetto outbreaks. For the perspective and vivid expression of culpability, I would submit two sentences written a century ago by Victor Hugo. If the soul is left in darkness, sins will be committed. The guilty one is not he who commits the sin, but he who causes the darkness. And then King goes on. The policymakers of the white society have caused the darkness. They created discrimination. They created slums. They perpetuate unemployment, ignorance, and poverty. It is incontestable and deplorable that Negroes have committed crimes, but they are derivative crimes. They are born of a greater of the greater crimes of the white society. End of quote. I submit to you the situation in Palestine is not analogous to the U.S. Uh, during the Jim Crow era. What Hamas did isn't comparable to those riots in 1967. A better comparison perhaps can be made uh, to the natives and their resistance to the pilgrims who were motivated by their so-called manifest destiny, determined to colonize Turtle Island and make it their own promised land. The Palestinian struggle, violent and nonviolent, is a struggle for liberation against oppression and colonization. And this was uh, and this was apparent to the early Zionist thinkers. For example, the Ukrainian Zionist thinker Zeev Jabotinsky understood this really well in his essay, The Iron Wall. He commented that the Zionist project of colonizing Palestine will for sure face resistance from the natives of Palestine. While the circumstances and the people and the geographies are different, the political conditions are eerily similar, the conditions of systemic racism and apartheid. 
As such, we need to talk about structural violence. This is the term that is given to preventable social conditions that result in groups of people having unequal chances of living and thriving, whereby fundamental human needs tend to be frustrated and human development tends to be in in inhibited as a result of the normal workings of social institutions. The power of structural violence lies in the fact that dehumanization, repressive and exploitative conditions can seem like business as usual to the perpetrators and to the victims and to the outsiders. And this is what the Palestinian writer Jean Zaro observes. She notes that the structures of violence are silent and people cannot take pictures of those. By contrast, she writes, television captures only the direct violence. Only the direct violence of the Palestinians can be seen in the West. While systemic violence and oppression and what's been described as apartheid against the Palestinians is invisible. And so this is our position as Palestinian Christians. We, part of the larger historical Eastern Christianity or Arabic Christianity, have consistently adopted nonviolence as our ethical and biblical approach in, in response to our lived realities. This is in contrast to Christianity in the West, a Christianity that is a product of empire, of wars and violence. Christianity in the East, in the East has been a Christianity of radical nonviolence in pursuit of peace and coexistence with its neighbors. Specifically as Palestinians, we encounter a theology that is born out of empire and bloodshed, a theology that came out of anti-Semitism and that is informed by, a, by an eschatology or end times thinking that has whitewashed violence and war, a theology that is fundamentally violent and oppressive, one that makes the Bible into a weapon, where the Bible doesn't speak truth or life, but a Bible that can has been that can be used to justify the ethnic cleansing and the and the disappearance of Palestine for the sake of Israel. And so we were forced to react. We were forced to see the Bible as a book of truth and goodness and not a book of, of violence and war. And we wanted this book to be a book of peace and a revelation of justice and freedom. And so we went back to the biblical traditions of justice and mercy as first proclaimed by Moses, saying that justice and only justice you shall pursue, or the prophets who demanded that we do justice and we love mercy and we walk humbly with God. Or looking into the example of Christ, of meekness, of blessedness for those who pursue peace and those who are merciful. And so we Palestinian Christians are fully committed to the way of Jesus in creative nonviolent resistance, which uses the logic of love and draws on all energies to make peace. Crucially, we reject all theologies and, and interpretations that legitimize the wars of the powerful. We also remind ourselves and fellow Christians that God is the God of the downtrodden and the oppressed, and that Jesus rebuked the powerful and lifted up the marginalized. This is at the heart of God's conception of justice, and that is what we pursue. So what do we ask of you? 
First, we ask you that you use the same energy and fervor you used to condemn violence, that you used to condemn Hamas, to condemn the conditions that caused that violence. Holding complex, nuanced ideas is possible. We are both aware enough and mature enough to hold multiple, complex, and difficult truths in our minds and hearts at the same time. Second, we need you to understand that you are part of this, that you are complicit in what is happening in Palestine. Christian Zionists are the ones who developed dispensationalism and Christian Zionism in the mid-19th century that gave way to Jewish Zionism. Christian Zionists, like Lord Belfort of Britain, who gave the promise of the Jewish homeland for the Zionists in Europe, He's the one and others alongside him who paved the way for the conquest of Palestine. Western Christians, whether Catholic or Protestants, have been largely behind anti-Semitism and supported fascism in World War II and the heinous crimes against European Jews. That is, Christians who applauded and celebrated 1948 and 1967 in Palestine and saw that the creation of Israel and the ethnic cleansing of Palestinians as a fulfillment to prophecy. It is Christians, Zionists, and dispensationalists who adopted an unwavering and uncritical support for Israel and for, this, for the ongoing war on Gaza. We have a devout Catholic in the White House, and we have devout Catholics and Protestants in Congress who are supporting Israel, Israel right now against the Palestinians. We have church leaders, we have pastors, we have so-called ethicists who justify the war in the name of self-defense and in the name of just war theory. You as Christians in the West need to examine your legacy of violence and justifying violence in the name of ethics and just war theory. This does not work. This is a clear violation of the gospel of Christ, a gospel of peace. Third, uh, we academics and theologians are also complicit, and here myself is included as I am a product of Western, the Western Academy. Not all of us are. I'm aware of the activism and the academic work of many Western scholars. Some of you are here tonight. I thank you and I honor you. But we're having academic conversations about supersessionism, about dispensationalism, about Catholic and Jewish rapprochement, about Lutheran and Jewish rapprochement, about Nostritati and how do we understand Nostritati today. All the while, Palestinians are absent. We are not part of the conversation. We aren't deserving of any attention. We do not fit. We are invisible. And to us as Palestinians, we see this as part of a framework of white supremacy. We're only mentioned insofar as we are the obstacle, the subhuman, the savage, the slave, or in this case, the terrorist. Terrorists aren't human. They don't deserve context. They don't deserve a story. They have no perspective. They have no trauma or hurt. They're only as, get, as good as dead. And this is not just one people group. This is all of Palestinians who are, who are not deserving of any context, who are not deserving to be seen. We do not fit. We are a problem to this Western white supremacist discourse. 
And so we ask you to examine how Western theology has been co-opted to erase people and to whitewash oppression. This is not about disagreeing with dispensationalism or, or with Christian Zionism. We need you to move beyond these academic and casual conversations over coffee. Responsibility now is to counter these ideologies. Your responsibility is to speak up and to stand up for the oppressed. If you wondered what you have done during the American uh, slavery or the Holocaust or the civil rights movement, or apartheid in South Africa, look at whatever you're doing right now for Gaza and for Palestine. As Paulo Ferreira, the Brazilian theologian, reminds us, washing one's hands of the conflict between the powerful and the powerless means to side with the powerful. The ultimate tragedy, Dr. King pronounced, is not the oppression and cruelty by the bad people, but the silence of good people. Let it not be said of you that you or your church or your, your university or your community were silent when 12,000 Palestinians were bombed and slaughtered with their tax dollars and support. Engage concretely with Palestine and with Palestinian Christians. Visit Palestine, meet the people, experience what they experience, see in your own eyes, come and see. If you are an ally, we need you right now. Your allyship is very important. It needs to be unapologetic, educated, and focused. It needs to be louder than the oppressor and quieter than the oppressed. Let me now finish with a paragraph from the open letter that myself, Munder, and Yusuf, and also Anton Daik wrote to Western Christians. We continue to find our courage and consolation in the God who dwells with those of a contrite and humble spirit. We find courage in the solidarity we receive from the crucified Christ, and we find hope in the empty tomb. We are also encouraged and empowered by the costly solidarity and support of many churches and grassroots faith movements around the world, challenging the dominance of ideologies of power and supremacy. We refuse to give in, even when our siblings abandon us. We are steadfast in our hope, resilient in our witness, and continue to be committed to the gospel of faith, hope, and love in the face of tyranny and darkness. In the absence of all hope, we cry out a cry of hope. We believe in God, good and just. We believe that God's goodness will finally triumph over the evil of hate and of death that still persists in our land. We will see here a new land and a new human being. The first responder is Logan Williams. Logan is currently a postdoctoral fellow at the Center for the Study of Christianity at the Hebrew University of Jerusalem, where he's working on a project on ritual and human transformation in ancient Judaism and Christianity. His first book, Christology and Ethics in Galatians, Love in the Shared Self, is forthcoming with Cambridge University Press. Next year, he will take up a position at University of Aberdeen, Scotland, as Kirby Lang Research Fellow in New Testament. 
thankful to uh, be able to um, share some responses. I am going to share a response to the uh, letter, uh, open letter that we have been mentioning, and I'm going to speak as a uh, Western uh, Christian um, in, in, in the, my capacity as in that response. So I want to turn to our, our attention to what I think has been a troubling feature of American Christian discourse, to put it lightly, about Israel and Palestine, which has come so clearly into focus since October 7th. Many American Christians quickly decried October 7th, rightfully so. It, th but this raises, of course, a crucial question. Have we Western Christians been partial in our opposition to injustice? The answer is so obviously, yes, we have been partial. How many of us have ever mentioned, let alone decried, anything described by Yusuf and Munther and Daniel just now, whether the Nakba, the ongoing occupation of Palestinian territory, or the system of apartheid designed by Israel against Palestine? Uh, uh, against Palestinians or the civilian casualties of Israel's previous indiscriminate attacks on Gaza. How many Western Christians are even aware of the situation of Palestinians living under Israeli occupation and apartheid? And how many of us spoke up in May of last year, for example, when an Israeli sniper assassinated the beloved Al Jazeera journalist Shirin Abu Akleh? Though there are some voices amongst Western Christians who speak against Israel's past and present oppression of Palestinians, acknowledgement of this, these facts is, on the whole, of course, shockingly hard to find on the lips of Western Christians. Discourse on these issues has been characterized by partiality. Some responses asserting the duty to stand with Israel from October 7th slightly have risen above this silence, slightly, um, about Palestine by offering reluctant and vague admissions that Israel is not perfect. So one recent article by Russell Moore, the senior editor of Christianity Today, published a few days after October 7th, for example, calls for, quote, moral clarity about standing against Hamas's attack on October 7th, while mentioning reluctantly that Israel isn't, quote, inerrant or infallible, and that, quote, many of us are quite willing to call out Israel when we believe it is acting wrongly. Moore has since said nothing critical of Israel's genocidal military campaign against Gazans. These admissions are, I guess, a step forward, but such claims need to explicitly speak the truth about Israel's oppression of Palestinians. Uh, unfortunately, statements like this, such as Russell Moore's, uh, also inadvertently contribute to this problem of partiality as they communicate that we must have moral clarity in standing against Hamas's attack on civilian Israelis. But the ongoing subjugation of Palestinians by the state of Israel is a topic up for debate, or a matter of private personal belief, or an issue regarding which one needs to first make a case, as another editor of Christianity Today put it. How will Western Christians respond to the ongoing and sadly inevitable future crimes against humanity that Israel will commit in Gaza and elsewhere? As I write this, Israel is well underway with committing war crimes in Gaza, as we all know, and experts now claim that all the red flags for genocide are up, and especially in light of, as we've already mentioned, the Israeli defense ministers claim that Israel is fighting human animals and we will, uh, we will uh, act accordingly, or the shockingly explicit calls for genocide by Israeli civilians and members of the Knesset and Netanyahu himself invoking the rhetoric of Amalek in response to his uh, war crime, or to justify his war crimes in Gaza. And I would note, as Daniel mentioned, this is also a trope that Western Christians have themselves perpetuated, notably in Peter Lightheart's article for the Gospel Coalition, which concerningly and deeply troublingly draws comparisons between Amalek and Hamas. It is undeniable that in all this, the State of Israel has utilized October 7th as a cover to commit atrocities against Palestinian people in Gaza, and they have every intention of continuing to do so as they have been since 1947, and nothing can justify this. 
Now the following questions, therefore, are placed upon all Western Christians. Will Western Christians equally call out the oppression and genocide of the Palestinians? Will, they who, will those who so quickly release pro-Israel statements within hours of the attack on October 7th also broadcast equally fervent speeches, announcements, and press releases against the Israeli military's war crimes against Palestinians in Gaza and elsewhere? Or will they show partiality and judgment, decrying the horrific evil of Hamas, attacking civilian Israelis, all the while sweeping Israel's criminal acts against Palestinians under the proverbial rug of Israel has a right to defend itself? I think that with our selective uh, political responses to issues in Israel and Palestine, we Western Christians have been complicit in, and I would even say, of course, active contributors to, an ideology that keeps innocent Palestinians in subjugation under a state that not only has been carrying out a systematic and organized campaign of ethnic cleansing, but also continues to perpetuate injustice against them by occupying them, constructing a system of apartheid, and killing them indiscriminately with their advanced weaponry. The asymmetrical discourse amongst American Christians on this issue constitutes a long-standing, intergenerational sin of partiality against our Palestinian neighbors. And by refusing to bear witness in the public arena to Palestinian suffering and the injustice of the state of Israel, we Western Christians have unjustly shown partiality and judgment, for which, according to my own theological tradition, we will rightly and justly be impartially judged. But I would commend to us here the words of Deuteronomy, you must not be partial in judging. Do not be intimidated by anyone, for the judgment is God's. Thank you. The second responder is Judith Norman. Judith is a distinguished professor and chair of the Department of Philosophy at Trinity University in San Antonio. Her research focuses on the history of philosophy, and she teaches a wide range of courses in the history of philosophy as well as indigenous philosophies and the philosophies of anti-colonialism. She has helped establish and teach in a program that brings philosophy and literature classes to a local prison. In addition, she is a community activist working with Jewish Voice for Peace in San Antonio for Justice in Palestine. Thank you so much. It's such an honor to be here um, amongst you all and to speak um, on a stage with, uh, with these speakers, these distinguished speakers, um, among whom are my longtime heroes. I traveled across Palestine in 2015 and 2016 as part of a small delegation led by the Palestine-Israel Network of the Episcopal Church. We visited Anglican and other Christian institutions and grassroots groups. We met with Nayam Atik and visited the Sabil Center. We visited the St. Perforius Church. We were able to enter Gaza by special invitation of the Anglican Archbishop of Jerusalem, where we were guests of the Al-Ali Hospital. We met with the directors, toured the grounds, and were hosted to meals with the staff and fundraised extensively for their operations. I was the only non-Anglican in the group. I am Jewish. I learned vital facts about Christianity from that visit, about the lived practice of compassion, not just as an emotion, but as a life way and a technology, how it can embed a complex intelligence and profound, a fuel a profound drive for justice. I'm here as a member of Jewish Voice for Peace, not only to uplift the plea for justice contained in the open letter, but to bear witness to a profound crisis in Judaism itself. As so many Jews abandon the orientation towards justice and compassion embedded in our own religion and mortgage our faith to empire, 
to the genocidal projects of the settler colonial regime of Israel. I'm here to quote Mark Ellis, M-A-R-C-E-L-L-I-S, who I urge you to read, when he says that the Jewish ethical tradition has been scorched beyond recognition. While we sit here, children, thousands of children, are dying under the rubble of their destroyed homes in Gaza, and their parents are, in, are, 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 are envying the finality of the death rather than the, the, rather than the continuance of their existence in hell. Christians have struck what Mark Ellis calls an ecumenical deal with Jews to consent to this atrocity and the distorted name of Holocaust repentance. Christians who engage this bargain are complicit not only in the genocide of the Palestinians, but the destruction of the ethical tradition at the core of Judaism. You are doing us no favors. You are enablers in the destruction of our ethical tradition. Isn't that anti-Semitism too? You are enabling the slanderous equation of Judaism and Zionism, when in fact Zionism is a distortion a blight, a curse upon the Jewish ethical tradition. What does this mean for us as scholars? I'm a philosophy scholar, not a religious studies scholar. So that is for you to answer. I'm here to present with you, sitting all here in our nice clothes and drinking our expensive coffee, two facts and to scold you, and to insist that any analysis from the position of religious studies is hollow if it doesn't center the children dying under the rubble and the suicidal crisis of the Jewish ethical tradition. I don't ask you to solve the contradiction between our nice clothes and the children dying under the rubble. We can't help our clothes, we can't help the price of coffee, <laughs> and that's not, that's not a problem that we can solve. But it's a contradiction that we need to engage. It's a contradiction that we need to acknowledge, and I think we can't go on without having that contradiction in the heart of anything that goes forward. Thank you. The third responder is Italia Omer. Italia is a professor of religion, conflict, and peace studies at the University of Notre Dame. Among other publications, she is the author of Days of Awe, Reimagining Jewishness in Solidarity with Palestinians. Thank you uh, for being here. Um, I want to acknowledge um, all the deaths and suffering, and uh, especially Daniel, your friend. Um, okay, so I, uh, I have uh, a lot to, um, that I want to reflect on, but I want to maybe um, uh, also bring together a few threads that are already on the table and maybe we articulate them a little bit. Um, so um, uh, so it w uh, that this slogan, the um, settler colonial typical, uh, as, uh, slogan and, and deployment of, kind of the biblical, uh, biblical tropes of uh, a land with no people for people uh, without a land um, is something that um, uh, some uh, political Jewish Zionist leaders were embedded in, but there were also other approaches. And I'm just reflecting on the fact that exactly 100 years ago, um, Netanyahu's kind of ideological forefather, Zeher um, uh, Jabotinsky, wrote a piece called The Iron Wall of 1923 uh, that actually recognized that there were people in the land. It's actually a very, very honest text. 
I highly recommend to read, to know, to know it. He recognized that there were people in the land and he also recognized that force and violence and containment, the iron wall, uh, was the, uh, the mechanism, um, the, the, the tool and the instrument uh, for, uh, for, this, uh, for what will unfold. So he called out the other Zionists for their romanticism, for their, uh, uh, <coughs> their kind of like, uh, imagination of the land as empty. But in fact, they also, those other people also saw uh, the land as not empty, but they were deeply embedded within the, all the ills of Europe, Europe as a project, including Orientalism, because they did see people, but they didn't recognize them as fully human. They looked at them as like flora and fauna. This is where it's also uh, very, very critical to look at the, um, the mechanism of, of empire, the imperialism, uh, the Christian Zionism, uh, but also understand how Orientalism uh, uh, played a role and have this multiplicity of variables in place as we analyze and understand the history, but also as we think about uh, future horizons that center uh, justice and um, accountability. Um, so, uh, so one cannot understand the, uh, the, the complexity underground without understanding Orientalism, without understanding uh, settler colonialism, uh, yes, like Daniel said and mentioned um, um, the Balfour Declaration of 1917. Uh, so it's a 100-year-plus war on, on the indigenous people of Palestine, on, uh, on Palestinians. Um, and, uh, and Balfour, Lord Balfour, was embedded in restorationist theology. Uh, so understanding of, uh, kind of having kind of a sense uh, about the um, uh, uh, kind of eschatological understanding of, um, of redemption as involving the, uh, the quote-unquote return of the Jews uh, to, uh, to the land why I say quote-unquote because in and of itself it contains that notion of return of the Jews entails that the Jews were not really from England, he was a British lord. Uh, so it already contains kind of the seeds of genocide uh, with respect to what happened to, uh, to the Jews of, um, of, of Europe. Um, uh, but the thing is that rest restorationist theology was circulating uh, uh, centuries before. Uh, it just and, and here I want to return to them, their earlier reference to Mitri Raev and this notion of um, uh, Christian Zionism being a software um, uh, to the hardware of, uh, of of empire. And so um, uh, and, um, and 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 that the, the, the need to seek to understand. Zionism, political, um, this, the political project as a settler colonial project, and Jewish Zionism as uh, intertwined and continue, continues to be intertwined with, uh, with Christian Zionism and imperial designs and all the other arguments that were made here. And I really want to, to, to highlight how, um, in fact, this notion about the, the again, the quote unquote return of the Jews to the land is also entails the the colonization of Jewish consciousness uh, by the Christian imagination about the Jews. And it involves multiple negations. So, so the, the whole project involves the negation of the, of the land, the negation of the people on the land, the negation of, um, of Arab Jews, um, and other kind of, of, of Jewish narratives, and also the negation of of Jewishness itself, of the Jewish tradition itself. So decolonization would entail work in all, in all those spaces. 
but I think, you know, centering Europe, this is really great. Again, Europe has this genocidal project, theological project, intellectual, political, settler colonial, uh, but we also, it's also very critical to, to illuminate uh, agency. And as a, I'm a Jewish Israeli, American too, um, uh, so the agency of Jews, um, and uh, the, the book that um, Murad referred to, um, that I wrote, uh, that involved a lot of ethnographic work with American Jews, uh, primarily uh, based on all reimagining Jewishness in solidarity with Palestinians, uh, uh, really shows and traces the processes in which um, Jewish people, uh, mostly younger people, uh, are, are reimagined the process that they go through in reimagining their Jewishness. They say, well, occupation is not my Judaism, then it begs the question, well, what is my Judaism? Uh, and they don't, um, uh, uh, they don't operate with an authentic kind of discourse of, of um, what is real, what is not real, because the process is relational. The process is in solidarity. Uh, it has to be accountable. It has to be historical. Like anti-Semitism has to be an, an understood historically. And what we see here is always the kind of the effort to shift it to a historical abstract level archetypes using Amalek uh, and all this archetypal um, uh, language. Um, so, uh, so the process is relational. It has to be accountable with the historical moment. Yes, there, there are centuries of Jewish powerlessness, but there need to be accountability for the reality the empirical reality of Jewish power. This is where we have to be historical, the context, context, context. And it's also intersectional. So it's, this is very, very important where um, the understanding, the, kind of the depth of the understanding of Jewish emancipation, Jewish freedom, Jewish redemption, Jewish uh, liberation uh, cannot happen without all these other liberations. And that Jews cannot be free until Palestinians are free. And that the occupation uh, is dehumanizing uh, also of the Jewish people and Israeli people. Um, and so, um, uh, and, uh, so, so there is a lot of, of, um, kind of work on the ground, and this is very important to illuminate, of reclaiming, re-articulating, reimagining uh, what it means to be, to be Jewish relationally and intersectionally. Um, however, many of us are being are called not Jewish. No, you are not really Jewish, because what does it mean to be Jewish? To be Jewish means to be in absolute and total loyalty to the project of a state. Uh, a state that, as was noted, uh, uh, even the Israeli Jewish Human Rights Organization, Bezalem, called Jewish Supremacist State. And I just want to know the fact that we all felt the need to say, also Bezalem, the Israeli Jewish Human Rights Organization, is saying that. Because Palestinians have been saying it all along. So I just want to kind of uh, telegraph this. Uh, uh, this point, um, and since we are talking about agency, uh, uh, I, I want to, uh, to note, and this is another thread um, that was mentioned uh, just now, uh, of the responsibility and complicity of the study of religion uh, uh, in the, um, uh, the realities of, on the ground. I mean, I, I just want to highlight one particular aspect of biblical archaeology. Um, uh, because biblical archaeology is one of the mechanisms, one of the instruments in which actual displacement in the population is happening. As we speak, yes, we are all focusing on Alaska, uh, but in occupied East Jerusalem, uh, biblical archaeology is, as, as we speak now, is the, the, the instrument by which uh, uh, Palestinians in the uh, neighborhood of Silwan, for instance, are being displaced because of the creation of this uh, city of David. 
kind of uh, Christian Disneyland and Christian, Christian and Jewish Disneyland. And, and, yeah. and if you go if you go to to, to uh, occupy this Jerusalem, you see all the tourists and how they they walk around and they actually they don't see anything. And even the, the, the streets, the materiality uh, of the city itself is shifting. How you can like how the, the city is now designed and redesigned through which gate you can go in, and then and that also and and it literally is the case that. Uh, the way in which Jerusalem is reconfigured, you can enter into the city, the old city, and feel like you are entering the biblical Disneyland, um, and you don't see Palestinians. You don't see Palestinians. So I'll conclude with this. Thank you very much. Oh, wow. Um, that is a lot to take in. And and now I wish I was attending the conference in, in person. Um, I wasn't able recently to actually express myself on this issue, but I'm happy that we have such conferences and talks because uh, despite the devastating reality we live in, I think these efforts um, to talk about the situation from a, a Christian perspective um, are important and encouraging. Um, the speakers covered some of the most important points that we should all keep in mind. But to be honest with you, Jen, what I noticed more than anything was the disappointment in the voices of the speakers. And I do share the same feelings. I think we are all very tired of uh, explaining ourselves, of feeling the need that we need to explain ourselves and that we are standing firm against injustices and that... Um, it's it's tiring that as as Daniel put it, we have we feel that we have to convince people um, to discover our humanity and to prove um, that we are not anti-Semitic and we are not violent and we do not want um, anyone to get hurt. It's it's it got to a point where it is really very very exhausting for us. Um, I think also what is more disappointing maybe for me is when when I hear Western Christian leaders, you know, who always preach about us being all equal, being all created in, in God's image, um, of all seeking justice together, and yet they take sides and weaponize the Bible to justify the Israeli's government actions. Um, her voices as Palestinian Christians are not taken into consideration or heard in the midst of all of this. And that's why I believe we need more people like Munder, Yusuf, Daniel, and, and many others who are trying and, and sharing our reality uh, and focus uh, as well on the Bible, uh, on the biblical perspective. I, I also appreciate the responders we heard from the conference and many other voices we are hearing these days from all around the world uh, that are also raising awareness about the Palestinian struggle. Our Reverend Dr. Munder talked um, not only about the issue, but he did uh, touch upon different solutions and, and mentioned creative nonviolent resistance that we adopt. And I think this is very important. Um, so, dear listeners, Jen and Daniel, in the second episode of, of Across the Divide podcast, discussed different Christian responses to the whole situation. So, if you haven't yet listened to that podcast, to sorry, to that episode, I encourage you to do so. Um, Yusuf also touched on that during the first episode. 
which was also uh, a very, very important uh, talk. Um, I think that also based on what we heard today from Yusuf, it's, it's very important to remember that context matters. And a lot of studying needs to be done to be able to understand the context properly. I know very well that our reality is very complex and I do not blame people um, for not understanding. Um, but I think that I do blame the people who do not try to understand and those who sh just share false information and interpretations of incidents based on some assumptions that they made. I think we are all wise enough and, and can really try harder to find reliable sources and include different voices in our research towards the truth. I would like to hear more, actually, from you, Jen, as an American Christian and as an attendee of, of the conference. Yeah, I wish that you were in that room, too. But I think like the pieces that you've pulled out from the conversation are so important. The idea that context matters. Um, a few summers ago, I was working with Reverend Dr. Munther um, on his most recent book. And like, I just have this very clear memory of him sitting at his desk in the office at the church. And we talked about this so many times, but he, you know, would say one of the things that's most heartbreaking for him is that Western Christians are sitting from the comfort of their offices or their churches talking about this land as if it's empty, as if there aren't real people living in it. Right. So creating theology, interpreting the Bible completely out of context, but in ways that has a direct impact on the lives of Palestinians. So I think the other thing that stuck out to me is what you said, Abir, that you, you could hear the exhaustion in the voices of all of these speakers. And I think that's something that I want to just touch on a little bit more is that you know, in the room after all of those talks that we got recorded, there were some some dialogue and some Q and A with those who were in the audience, and there were really great questions. There were it was it was a good room. Like there were important conversations happening. There was such a good energy in the room of like a posture of learning, of wanting to really a lot of folks really wanted to figure out what they can do in their positions to respond to the call in this letter, which I think is what we need from American Christians right now. We need to be listening to Palestinians and especially Palestinian Christians and responding in whatever ways we can with the privilege of the institutions, the churches, the communities that we're a part of. But I think a couple of the questions that came up from people in the audience were to the Palestinian Christian speakers, asking them what specific actions can their churches take or can their theological institutions take to respond to this letter, to repent as Western Christians. And I think while those are well-meaning questions, they're problematic. Uh, we heard from Munther that Palestinians are tired of doing Western Christians' homework for them. So I think first, as Western Christians, we need to do our homework. If we haven't met a Palestinian, we should seek out where we can listen to and learn from them. There are so many webinars and talks and podcast episodes and recorded sermons available online, we can find those resources. And first, we can listen and learn from them. We can take a deep dive into history. We can get the books that we need to learn the histories. We can learn the histories that we don't know before we speak, right? Oftentimes, we speak out of our own opinions, our own interpretations of scripture. 
when they're not really grounded in context, both historical context and contemporary context. And then I think as we heard from Daniel, we are we are, are people that have the ability to think creatively about how we organize, about how we respond, about how we teach in our communities, especially in our churches. Churches knew how to organize and respond very quickly to the war and the occupation of Ukraine. Churches organized very quickly. And in this recent situation, churches organized, a lot of churches organized very quickly in support of Israel. So it's not that we don't know how to organize. It's not that we don't have the resources to get our voices out there in support of marginalized people. We just often do it selectively. And so I think we need to think of the tools that we have in our churches. Uh, you know, I, I also think we need to seek out other pastors who are doing this work. We need to seek out organizations that are providing resources for us. Uh, we'll put a few names of organizations in the show notes, uh, but let's think creatively here. Let's not ask for people uh, to tell us exactly what to do because they also don't know our context. So we know our context better than anyone else. Yeah, exactly. Um, that's very important, Jen. Thank you. Thank you for pointing that out. Um, I, I honestly, I find it encouraging to receive messages from uh, people from different parts of the world uh, saying that they are praying for us and they've been following the news and, and they ask, they ask uh, what they can do for us. But at the same time, um, as, as you said, I think um, we're all tired at this point and, and all we care about is that people do something. And I think what matters is that each person helps with their own uh, capacity and, and context. We cannot dictate to people what to do, uh, but we can provide them with resources and, and guidance to understand the situation better uh, so that they build their own case um, and an argument and belief about it. I just, to be honest with you, I, I hope that we try harder as a global community um, to understand, to educate ourselves, and as we mentioned, to uh, listen to reliable uh, sources and also to stop judging the actions based on who did them, but based on the actions themselves. Because at this point, we're all very tired of the double standards that we are witnessing and that have been um, mentioned um, also in the talks. Um, for now, and to conclude this episode, I think that what matters for us at this point is not to give in and not to lose hope. And as stated in the open letter and um, as how Daniel concluded his talk, um, now we continue to be committed to the gospel of faith, hope, and love. Thank you for listening, friends. If you enjoyed this episode and would like to see more content like this, please consider becoming a financial supporter of Across the Divide. You can make a one-time donation or become a monthly supporter of the podcast through the following link, www.ko-fi.com slash across the divide podcast. You can also find it in the show notes. The hosts of this podcast are Daniel Banura, Jen Madrand, and myself, Abir Shadi. Salim Hanfus is our amazing producer. Special thanks also go to Charlie Rishmawi for composing the theme music. If you have questions, topics you would like to suggest for future episodes, or just wish to show us some love and support, 
please reach out through Instagram at Across the Divide Podcast. Until next time. Thank you.